Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Madera County is located in the Central Valley with Modesto to the north and Yosemite to the east. The agricultural community in the San Joaquin Valley is home to a Latino majority where roughly one-fifth live in poverty. And access to health care is slim. That became even more challenging this month. The county's lone community hospital closed its doors and with it, the three clinics residents relied on. And there are signs other community hospitals across the state are struggling to stay open and may suffer the same fate. Joining us are CalMatters reporters Ana Ibarra and Nicole Foy, who dove into the financial health of community hospitals across California and the consequences for residents. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Vicki. Nicole, I want to start with you. Both of you are located in the Bakersfield area, but you actually traveled out to Madera County. Paint a picture of the people that live and call Madera County home. Well, so many of the people who live in Madera County, and particularly the ones who are really relying on this hospital, work in agricultural agriculture because it is such a um, sprawling agricultural area. You know, there's almond orchards everywhere. A lot of uh, a couple of people who I spoke to live right next to those almond orchards. And um, it's really a community that is also kind of sometimes suffering the effects of of living among all of this agriculture. Um, many folks um, who I who I interviewed discussed long-term um, chronic conditions like asthma or other breathing issues or other things that they believe come from living um, among a lot of pesticide exposure. Uh, but also too, it's a community that, um, like you said, is Latino majority and um, has a lot of um, a lot of immigrants who are working in agriculture and also a pretty significant Oaxacan indigenous community too. And these are all groups um, that are really going to be affected by the loss of this hospital. You also are someone who grew up in the San Joaquin Valley. So that gives you, I mean, not only as a journalist, but just as a person, an intimate understanding of the needs of healthcare and the disparities that exist. Yeah, it's it's. I grew up in in Bakersfield, and um, and you know, it's 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 bigger than Madera. It's a little bit different, but it's all. There's always been this understanding that the Central Valley doesn't have quite as many resources as um, other parts of the state, and that was really a lot of the frustration that I think we were hearing from both elected officials and um, residents um, themselves. Just there's already kind of a really thin line of resources in places like Madera County, and that line just got much thinner. So with all of that context, how crucial was this hospital in Madera County to the community and not just the hospital, but the clinics? Yeah, this hospital also had, I think, something that some people have forgotten is that this, this hospital also has several clinics that were in very like rural areas. Like I went out to one in Mendota with, um, with one of our photographers, and we were sp- speaking to folks who were coming to pick up their uh, their medical records right before the clinic closed. And many of them didn't know, you know, they were, they were trying to make plans to who the, who their next primary care physician was going to be. They were already traveling pretty far to reach that clinic. And that clinic was already, um, already filling a really crucial need in the community. And then you also have others who, um, are trying to, you know, map out how quickly it's they're going to have to get to an emergency room now, how quickly they they um, are going to have to call an ambulance if they have something like a really serious asthma attack and they have to um, wait for this ambulance to come and find them out in their little house next to a, a, an almond orchard. And 
these are yeah these are things that i think are are really going to have long range long, long range impacts because this was also a hospital i think that served a lot of people who maybe didn't um really uh need, go go to medical care always use a primary care physician um unless they were going in for emergency care and that has really um long lasting um, effects on your overall health. And now that emergency care is not available either. Yeah. And what I'm learning from you is that, you know, an already thin line of resources in the Central Valley just became even thinner. Yes. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Is what other options are there when I mean, we do have good hospital systems across the state. How long would it take for someone in Madera County to travel to to a hospital? Um, well, I think one of the one of the things that, you know, it can add, you know, anywhere from between 20 to 30 minutes, depending on what type of care that you're you're going to need. There are there is still a um, a chain of um, urgent cares, um, Camarina Health, that has really um, from from what we've been told, stepped up and expanded urgent care hours. But, you know, that's not always um, an option for folks who have been relying on um, Amadera community. And of course, there were people who were already getting their medical care. Um, in Fresno, if they had doctors that they preferred, uh, but especially a lot of the people who um, were on, for example, Medi-Cal, um, I think something like, if I remember correctly, 60% of um, the hospital's um, norm- like visits were, were generally Medi-Cal. That, that's a pretty significant loss for those folks. And I just think about how a hospital is more than just medical care because you're part of the community. You have a unique understanding of the needs of the community, which is incredibly diverse. And there are a lot of barriers, language barriers included. What are the the unforeseen or, or even perhaps the overlooked consequences of a hospital closure of this kind in Madera County? I think um, one of the things that when we spoke to experts about this really just brought up, you know, the impacts that we are not going to see quite yet on things like um, um, help for people with chronic conditions. Um, Also, you know, a hospital like this is kind of the the center of um, a number of things like a public health um, apparatus, as well as um, you know, outreach and and building long um, long lasting relationships with with folks, for example, in the Oaxacan indige- indigenous community. A number of those um, folks who live in the Madera area, um, Spanish is not their first language either. They may speak Zapotec or Mixteco, and that's something that. Um, it's really hard to replace immediately, and even the loss of it for just a few months. Um, um, if you know, if the hospital does only remain closed for that long, which is is a hope, um, that that's something that's going to be very difficult to replace because those relationships didn't pop up overnight. Anna, you also looked at this from a bigger picture and even looking at other hospitals across the state. Before we get to that, what did you learn about the root causes of Madera County's lone hospital for adults closing? Yeah, so it seems like this was has been a conversation for a very long time. Um, Madera Community Hospital was negotiating with um, Trinity Health, the owner of uh, St. Agnes Medical Center in Fresno County. And so the idea was that this hospital would come in by the hospital and um, really keep it in the in the community. Um, that deal fell through at, uh, at the end of December. And um, they sort of pointed fingers to the attorney general. Um, the attorney general, state attorney general, uh, 
is responsible for um he oversees uh hospital or healthcare mergers that include a nonprofit um and Madera Community Hospital is a nonprofit hospital so um they the attorney general posted conditions that Trinity Health would have to meet in order to um purchase or for the for the state to approve the purchase of the hospital um and so you know among those conditions were some price caps. And um, while we never got an answer from Trinity Health on what specifically, um, you know, pushed them to, to uh, pull out of the deal, uh, industry people I talked to, including the California Hospital Association, you know, explained that when you put price caps on this type of deal, it could really just make it difficult for that new buyer to pull um, the hospital out of the financial situation it is in. Hmm. I mean, the past few years for hospitals has been a strain financially across the state and across the country. And we're talking about smaller community nonprofit hospitals. What does this say about about the state of these of these smaller hospitals compared to these healthcare systems? Yeah, so the, the most of the hospitals we're hearing um, about um, are independent hospitals. So these have no affiliation to a larger health system, which means fewer resources. Um, these hospitals are are uh, tend to also really serve primarily low income populations and are heavily reliant on programs like Medi-Cal. And you know, for as long as I can remember, there's always been this conversation about. Medi-Cal reimbursements being too low and that Medi-Cal payments to providers don't cover the cost of care. And so the argument is that these hospitals have for a long time been underfunded. Um, and of course, then you add, you know, the pandemic to the mix. And as you know, Vicky, the hospital lobby has since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic been sort of sounding the alarm that these hospitals, especially smaller independent hospitals, are losing records amount and that we could eventually see um, these close closures or uh, service reductions. Um, but for the most part, you know, federal COVID relief dollars kept hospitals afloat or at least offset some of their losses. But now that money is largely gone um, and these hospitals are still having to respond to COVID waves every so often. And, you know, that includes um, one of their biggest expenses, which um, is contracted labor uh, like travel nurses. Yeah, right. Because travel nurses during this time, I mean, they were getting paid, you know, compared to a full time nurse in the same position, a lot more money per hour. Right, right. One um, hospital I spoke to out in Visalia, who, um, you know, their CEO there has been pretty outspoken about their situation. Um, he's expecting to have his, uh, you know, toughest fiscal year. And, you know, he mentioned that he pays about $200 an hour for every uh, travel nurse um, he has. And and his contract labor rates right now are at the highest they've ever been um, because, you know, there's a deep um, labor, we've been reporting on this too, a deep labor shortage across, you know, healthcare in general. Yeah, aside from Visela, you've been talking with other hospitals as well that are concerned about their financial state and, and may be at risk of, of falling down that same path of potentially closing. What are you learning from them? Yeah, I think one of the more um, maybe uh, uh, severe or or her uh, cases that I, um, we're hearing about is a hospital out in San Benito County and in Hollister, Hazel Hawkins. You know they put out 
um, or they declared financial emergency late last year, and they are now estimating to run out of cash in mid-March. And so we'll be following um, that because I know right now they are sort of scrambling to find um, solutions. You know, they did recently get a loan from the state, um, but uh, I'm sure it's going to take a lot more than that $3 million loan to keep them um, afloat. So we'll be keeping an eye on that hospital to see, you know, what sort of um, solutions uh, they can come up with in this pretty short window. In the meantime, Anna, what is the state doing to help? What, What can it do? Yeah, so, you know, I know we, we spoke to um, uh, Senator Caballero, one of the legislators that's been uh, pretty involved with the, the Madera Community Hospital um, and and in conversations with local officials there, too. You know, she did say they are, um, you know, trying to to help um, sort of guide uh, the the county in, in whatever they may need. Um, you know, the state as of now, um, they they haven't put up, um, from my understanding, um, any money as of now. I mean, it's not my understanding or from what Senator Cavallero told us, you know, it's not necessarily um, in the state's purview to reopen hospitals, but they can provide guidance and they could provide some financial help, um, like the loan that they provided to um, Hazel Hawkins. Um, the uh, I know that the hospital association is asking for two things from the state, and one is for them to really revisit the medical reimbursement rates, um, and also they are asking for a one-time um, one point five billion dollar um, ask to help hospitals that are um, in in uh, uh, currently in danger of uh, potentially closing. Um, but again, we're also, you know, the state is facing a, a deficit right now. So I don't know um, how, what the chances of that happening are. Um, but I know that there is a lot of conversations uh, going on um, about how to help these hospitals. Nicole, I mean, after hearing all of that, what do Madera residents do in the meantime? What, what are they telling you? Madera residents, the ones I spoke to are really, I mean, some of them are distraught. Uh, really, they they are either frantically looking for new options for their loved ones or and themselves, or they are just waiting for answers. And honestly, I think kind of frustrated, um, you know, with any number of, of people associated with this, um, that there aren't more answers for forthcoming. Um, and honestly, there there might not be some answers for some some time. But I and a lot of a lot of folks are you know hoping to try to. A lot of folks spoke to me because they wanted to spread the message that this is this cannot go on like this. This is going to become difficult pretty quickly, um, and and many experts and local officials are are really worried about about uh, deaths that will occur from this or from from um, you know conditions that will go undiagnosed or, or chronic illnesses that will not get the treatment that they need, and we won't even be able to see the impacts of that for a while. But um, I think people in Madera County are really urgently looking for some type of assistance, whether that's the state or um, someone else to come and um, fill this really necessary resource that they need. Finally, I want to ask the both of you this, because we don't necessarily think about health care until we need it in an emergency situation. What do you want people to, to take away from this piece of your reporting? Nicole, I'll start with you. 
I mean, I think especially when it comes to healthcare in areas like the Central Valley that um, are are often many, many parts of the valley are already on every list when it comes to, um, you know, just uh, disadvantaged uh, populations or under-resourced populations. And you you can't wait until something dramatic like this happens to kind of build up the resilience of these areas because there are people who frankly will suffer pretty severely when that happens and who cannot wait until an emergency catches um, uh, state attention. I think um, some of these areas we need to turn our attention to earlier uh, rather than um, waiting for an emergency. Yeah. And when it, when it, there's an actual closer, closure, Anna, what about you? Yeah. You know, I think thinking about this uh, reporting a um, lot uh, in terms of California, it really has, I think if you ask any, you know, health policy person, they look about the achievements of California. We talk a lot about um, you know, California doing a, a good job in expanding access to uh, healthcare, specifically Medi-Cal for low-income populations. Um, but we know that having, you know, Medi-Cal insurance um, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the care, um, a timely care that um, you need. And so, you know, I think as we talk about the California's expansion of insurance coverage, we also need to really focus on what type of care um, these people or these communities are receiving. Um, so it's just spurring a lot of ideas on on what to, you know, cover and, and think about um, next. Anna, Nicole, thank you so much for your reporting and taking the time to join us. Thank you, thank you for having us. Ana Ibarra and Nicole Foy are reporters for CalMatters, sharing their reporting about Madera County's lone hospital closing its doors earlier this month and concerned that other hospitals of its kind across the state may suffer the same fate. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. They are moms, aunts, grandmothers, and sisters with a common goal to make the city of West Sacramento a great place to live, work, and visit. This past November, voters in West Sacramento made history by electing its first-ever all-female city council. According to the League of California Cities, West Sacramento is one of six communities in our state with an all-female legislative body. The West Sac Council is made up of a mayor and four council members, and they are Mayor Martha Guerrero, who ran unopposed and is now in her second term. She's also a legislative representative for the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. Council member Karina Orozco, who has served on the council since 2016 and is also an attorney and mother of four. Council member Dr. Dante Early was elected in 2021, and she is a mom and serves on the board of the United Way California Capital Region. Council member Norma Alcala was elected to the council in 2020. She was raised in West Sacramento and has five grown children and 10 grandchildren. And last but not least, council member Verna Sulpizio Hall is the newest member of the team elected in 2022 for the first time. And we are happy to have all of the members of the West Sacramento City Council on Insight. So welcome 
everyone. And thank you all for being here. It's a really good group. <laughs> thank you, Vicky. Thank you. Yeah, it's like a council member elected party here. Okay, so you you all come from <laughs> there. <laughs> yes, happy to have all of you. You all come from such diverse backgrounds, educations, professions, lived experiences, and certainly diverse perspectives, especially when it comes to politics. But is being the the city's first all female city council just a cool headline, or does it have a deeper meaning for each of you, Mayor Guerrero? I'll start with you. Well, thank you, Vicky. I think it's a pretty significant um, part of our representation, um, representing the people of West Sacramento, but also um, at large, where we just um, celebrated, you know, and, and are sad about the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, where we now know that, um, you know, there are challenges in other parts of the nation, where California, we are protecting women's bodies and their right to choose. And for women, you know, there are other challenges where we also see the uh, passage of SB 826, where it's been ruled as unconstitutional, where there are not enough women represented on boards, um, you know, in private sectors. So we are here as a women, all women city council, representing, showing that we can do an excellent job on behalf of the community. Councilmember Orozco, what does it mean to you to be part of this history-making city council for West Sac? Well, it is very exciting to see uh, that when I look to the left and the right, uh, these are mothers, grandmothers, policymakers, attorneys, uh, folks that really step up and, and roll their sleeves uh, to do the work and shoulder to shoulder in collaboration with one another for the sake of a common good, uh, our community. Um, I have nothing but respect for uh, the women that have decided to step forward and put their their lives on the line in order to to commit to that. I mean, we we all do a bunch of invisible work all the time, and um, as mothers and um, and people who really want to make a difference, it's just a really proud place to be. Council member, early you were elected in twenty twenty one. Did you think come twenty twenty three it would be an all female city council? No, I <laughs> I had no idea that it was going to be an all um, female city council. Um, for me, the the individuals I supported in in running for city council, I supported them because of their their values, because of the the work they wanted to get done, and um, because I knew they represented our our city. It just so happens that they were women, so it is it is pretty amazing. Councilmember Alcala, you were elected in twenty twenty. What does this mean to you? Oh, I think we lost council member Alcala. We'll have to get we'll have to get the council member back. All right. Well, last but not least, council member Sulpizio Hall. How about you? I'm sorry. Can you ask that question? Yeah, again, please? of course. I mean, you are you were elected in 2022, just you know, a few months ago for the first time. And now you're part of a history making city council, all female. Is that just a headline to you or does it have a deeper meaning? I think there's a deeper meaning to it. Um, you know, for a very long time, we didn't see women in places of power. Um, you could go into any boardroom or any city council chambers and you'd see a majority of men um, um, on the dais or around the board table. And I think um, over the last several years, we've seen um, 
uh, more intentional work to support women and provide opportunities for women. And I think because of that, um, we have what we now have in West Sacramento of an all-female council. Um, when I ran, um, we knew that there was the possibility of that, um, especially with my seat, because I did run against a man. Um, and so um, as we were going through the campaign and talking to folks um, about their values and priorities, um, you know, mentioning that there could be the possibility of the first all-female council, that got people excited because it's something that they've never seen before. Mm. Mayor Guerrero, given that the council is all female, but it's not only West Sacramento, uh, the Sacramento City Council is now majority female legislative body. Elk Grove's mayor is also a woman. What does this say about just women in politics and leadership positions, especially when we're thinking about the greater Sacramento region? Well, I think it demonstrates that uh, the constituency is looking to women to be proactive, to be engaged to be understanding at a different level. And I, it demonstrates to um, all of us that, you know, we are capable of doing that work because we have been doing it for a long time as mothers and myself as a grandmother. I'm helping to uh, raise my grandson with my daughter. So we are multitaskers. And, you know, in, during the campaign, I think we were very visible and engaged with the community so that Community engagement is extremely important is what I've seen and important to the residents and those that we serve in our in our um, regions. Councilmember Orozco, what do you think this signals? You know, when I look back, uh, there have been days when I've been all day in trial and I get off of work and I rush home uh, to pick up children at the bus stop and to make dinner and then to deliver them to soccer and baseball practice. And then you arrive into closed session in order to do uh, the work of the council for our community. I just think about all of the invisible work that women take on and how, you know, if you remove us from the um, from you know the, the, the machine, uh, what happens thereafter? And I, I always say uh, to my colleagues, if you want something done, you ask somebody busy. And as the mayor said, you know, we are masters of multitasking, for better or for worse. But uh, I know we are ready to get things done. It's important to point out that these positions are part-time, right? And Absolutely. you're juggling and wearing many, many hats, both personally and professionally. Council member Early, I mean, what does this signal to you? The fact that, you know, do you think that these positions should be full-time? I mean, you, you all are doing so much and juggling a lot. Well, um, <laughs> so I, I am uh, president and CEO of United Way and and we serve um, the five county region. And so when I think about the intense amount of juggling that we, we do um, undertake, it is a lot. We are really fortunate to have um, a, a really strong, committed city staff. And so we could not do this work without that support um, because so much of the work really does rely on us making um, those high level decisions and then our staff executing um, it goes beyond just our city council meetings. And I think that's sometimes what people don't understand. In addition to our city council meetings, which are every other week, we also have another five boards and councils that we sit on to represent our city, both at the county and regional level. And, and so, yes, I do think it is more of a, a full-time job, um, but I also think we are really fortunate to have these committed women who are stepping up despite having children, despite having very demanding jobs, um, because they're so committed to our city. Hmm. 
Council Member Sulpizio Hall, you know, given that this is your first year as a council member and West Sacramento has grown so much in recent years, what are some of the top issues that that you want to tackle? You know, for me on my campaign, um, connecting with residents in my district, it was really about increasing the quality of life um, for those that we serve. And um, my priorities included expanding access to affordable childcare options and mental health. And um, one thing that we've heard citywide, and we know it's a priority, is prioritizing road repair and ongoing maintenance. Um, and it's very, a, a lot of the stuff, the policies that women bring to the table. Um, uh, we bring our, our gender affects our policy priorities. And you, you kind of see that in the um, things that I brought to the table. Um, but uh, our city council is focused on increasing the quality of life of the residents we serve. Um, and so, like I mentioned, road maintenance, we've got millions coming to improve some of our park spaces in the city and some redevelopment of some really unique spaces, including the Pheasant Club here in town. Right. Yep. The Club Pheasant, which actually it's historic and, and unfortunately closed. So that chapter has come to an end. But making way for for a new chapter for the city of West Sacramento, which all of you are going to decide upon <laughs> as, as elected officials. Um, Council member Early, you know, what issues do you want to tackle for, for this year in 2023? As someone who has um, a background in behavioral health, I think that you can't go very far without seeing the significant housing shortage and needs of, um, of our neighbors who are unhoused. Um, I have actually uh, ran the past three years, and so I've had the privilege of of knocking on doors since 2020 every single year. And I've heard from neighbors how this is something that has increasingly become front of mind. And so I I think it's important that we work on transitional housing in order to support our neighbors who are unhoused and potentially have mental health needs and affordable housing as COVID has happened and folks have migrated from high income jobs in the uh, in the Bay Area to Sacramento, we've seen that there is no longer real true affordable housing. And so those are some of the issues that I'm, I'm hoping to tackle with my colleagues, but also in partnership with our county colleagues as well as regional. Council Member Orozco, where do you think you can make the biggest difference in West Sacramento? <clears throat> I think every day we have an individual choice to uh, look at our community with a different lens. And in the last uh, six, seven years that I've been serving on the council, I've seen tremendous changes. Um, I look forward to working with uh, my my colleagues uh, to bring our brains together in order to, to tackle those very, very important issues. And excuse me, um, a lot of the issues that we we have voiced are um, are very common to a lot of the residents in our city. And I think that we're working hard to make sure we reflect that in our decisions. Mm -hmm. Mayor Guerrero, given that you are now reelected, you have seen the issues grow and evolve in the city of West Sacramento. What is your priority for this year? Well, thank you. That's a very good question. I share the priorities that my council members um, just voiced at this time. Um, I think in strengthening um, our partnership in working um, with the you know president's administration, our state, and the governor's administration, our, our county partners in drawing down funding, um, both federal, state, and local funding, to make sure that we can make these um, priorities, um, you know, become, come to fruition, which to ensure that we have the sufficient uh, funding for infrastructure, which we are hearing from our residents, potholes is a big issue. But also seeing that the 
recent uh, atmospheric river hitting our city very hard, making sure that we have flood protection and continue to shore up, you know, our levees, which we're very grateful for Congresswoman Matsui and um, the president for making sure that we have received the federal funding necessary for that and making sure that we also have the resources to provide a response for our first responders who are in the front lines and both our uh, firefighters and our police officers, because I think they're stretched really thin as our city is growing. So ensuring that and affordable housing is another priority, which we've been doing, I think, well in the last couple of years, where we've um, significantly have seen, um, have you seen on the riverfront, the number of housing that has been built, both at the market rate, but also the affordable housing with our new Tower Gateway and um, supportive housing with our Mercy Housing on West Capitol Avenue and Project Home Key, which we've established a stronger relationship with the state and county level. So making sure that if we have all different levels of housing available, as Councilmember Early stated, I'm really grateful that we have such a good council that is willing to address and prioritize all these issues. Yeah, the riverfront has just completely been transformed in recent years. And there's been a lot of really cool and new attractions in West Sacramento. So let's end on an exciting note, you know, from the Van Gogh experience to Enchant Sacramento over the holiday, Cirque du Soleil. I mean, these are all pretty big deals for the city. What excites you about West Sacramento, and maybe if you can give us a little preview of what maybe the city has up its sleeve for 2023. Mayor, I'll start with you. Well, we are real excited uh, for our mobile farmers market that's continuing on and our, uh, you know, Van Gogh that we're going to continue to see um, the exhibit grow and maybe evolve into something um, unique and different. We're continuing to work with the producers of that. And uh, also, we have a new owner of our River Cats. So, you know, strengthening that partnership and seeing the possibilities and what they envision for our riverfront. So that's been really exciting and new. Uh, And so, and working with a um, all female city council member, <laughs> Council Member Orozco, what excites you about West Sac this year? Well, West Sacramento, <clears throat> excuse me, West Sacramento has always been known as the tiny little city that can. You know, we we have transcended so many expectations from being this you know small working class uh, city that's been couched in between a much more ra- major uh, metropolitan area cities. And, um, you know, I, I do want to continue the vision that was set long before we ever became council members, which is to, you know, bring that vibrancy uh, and continue that momentum. We do have a thriving riverfront, and there's so much more to come. Uh, we also have a thriving business community we look forward to supporting post-COVID. Uh, but in, in addition, you know, there are families that are relocating to our city because they recognize that it's a gem in the region, and they want to raise their families in a safe community with with beautiful parks. And, and to, to be a part of that vision is uh, is very exciting to me. I've heard of the hashtag Westsack Best Sack. It is. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, Councilmember Orozco, I also want to bring up something that you did reveal publicly about some serious health challenges. And I just want you to give you an opportunity to share just as much as you feel comfortable and also your message to your constituents and the community that have wrapped their arms around you and, and supported you. Well, thank you. I I don't want to take any of the emphasis away from the dynamic women that are uh, on this council that stand by, you know, by my side. But I will say that I have received a tremendous amount of support from not only my colleagues, but yes, the community as well. And I mean, when it comes to the point where you um, 
you know, you're compromised uh, in some way, you definitely have to lean on the folks who can provide that support. And I've seen nothing but that from the leaders uh, at my side as collaborative uh, in, in our leadership abilities and as mothers and as people who are naturally <laughs> caregivers. And that's not not to generalize, but, you know, that's how women have been viewed. Um, but I think that they have definitely embraced uh, this journey and uh, together, um, as we navigate the path, we are also leaving a trail behind us for others to step forward in such a fashion. Yeah, that's wonderful and, and incredibly powerful. Council Member Early, what excites you about this year and what makes, you know, WESAC BESAC? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will often use that hashtag. Um, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to leave, um, though, that what my um, colleague just said uh, as really busy women, um, oftentimes we put ourselves last because we are taking care of everyone and everything around us. And I think that's even more magnified when you are a public servant. And I, as we talked about, this is um, mostly an unpaid position. This truly is the, the purest form of public servant. And, and we put our community first before ourselves as well sometimes. Um, and and so when my colleague shared that um, her diagnosis and what had happened, I immediately got fully checked up. And I know so many other women immediately made the time. And that is the, the important part, that women need to make the time to take care of themselves first and put their safety mask on first um, before um, helping others, because you can't help others and pour from an empty cup. Um, so I just, I didn't want to leave that part. Uh, so what excites me, uh, in addition to being all women, we are also all women um, who are people of color. And and so you have seen um, probably even more infusion of culturally um, exciting and relevant uh, activities and opportunities for our city as well. And one of which was the color of music, which was an all African-American or African uh, black American um, orchestra that played uh, music that was composed by black composers who often in our history did not get the platform uh, here in the U.S. And so we will be bringing them back next year. And we're really excited for that regional partnership and those kinds of opportunities in which we're not only as um, council members, Peasel Hall voice bringing our gender, but we're also bringing our culture to the table. And that part really excites me as well. Mm, that's wonderful. Council member Sulpizio Hall, I, I will I will leave the last message to you. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm uh, a mom of a two-year-old, and I actually have a five-week-old as well. And um, where we love to spend our time is our local parks. And we have um, had such amazing opportunities to meet um, other families. And post-COVID, people in our community are really desperate for connection and having space to do that. And so I'm excited about, you know, we mentioned the Pheasant Club um, reuse, creating a community space there that um, we can gather and hopefully, you know, feed our bodies with fuel. Um, And then um, our local parks, you know, Heritage Oaks Parks in my district has got millions of dollars coming to it. And this is work from our current council and for years before to create spaces that we can bring families together. So I'm really excited um, for those spaces to be expanded and for us to be able to step in and program and to bring the community together. Well, to the mayor and all the city council members, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedules. Thank you. Thank you. And that is the mayor and city council members of West Sacramento. You are listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment.
Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We just interviewed the women who make up West Sacramento's first all-female city council. Certainly a proud milestone for West Sacramento and the community, but also for women in our area seeking to get involved politically. On Thursday, the Sacramento County Commission on the Status of Women and Girls will be holding a reception to honor many of our local elected women and learn about several nonprofits that support women and girls in our area. It turns out that Sacramento County is one of the largest counties in California that did not have a commission of this kind until very recently. In fact, it's only been up and running for just over a year. Erin Saberi is the chair of the Sacramento County Commission on the Status of Women and Girls and joins us now ahead of the event on Thursday. Good morning, Erin. Good morning. So this may be an introduction to a lot of people listening. What is the mission of this commission? Well, the, I didn't make that I actually rhymed. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> the mission of the commission. Yes, well, the mission of the commission is really to uplift uh, women and girls and in Sacramento County in our region to advise the County Board of Supervisors and the public mm-hmm. on issues relating to the well-being of women and girls. And we have been asking the question in the run-up to forming this commission, how are the women and girls of Sacramento County? And the ultimate mission is to answer that question and to be responsive and to help policies, programs, and uh, information be spread and shared uh, for supporting women and girls. And although this is, you know, recently new for Sacramento County, I mean, this commission does exist elsewhere. How long does the Commission on the Status of Women and Girls, how long does it go back in the state? Well, in uh, it's it's really been over 50 years since women's commissions have been formed, uh, starting back in the Kennedy administration with Eleanor Roosevelt, and then internationally, there are, women's commissions are robust and dynamic throughout the world. And also here in, in California, we have a state women's commission and uh, 28 throughout the throughout the state of California. How did this commission in Sacramento County come about? Who started it and why? Well, uh, it was myself and a group of really dynamic women who, uh, interestingly enough, we didn't know each other. But we, out of the, um, out of the women's, you know, the Me Too movement, the women's marches, and this kind of, again, uh, exploring uh, the sense of uh, women and 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 women's issues that evolved about five or six years ago, uh, we kind of looked around and asked the question, you know, how do we build a sustainable uh, accountability to answering the question of how are the women and girls, and we and we realized that Sacramento was one of two of the eight largest counties in California without a commission, and we thought, well, this is this is perfect. We need to go deeper in in instead of just marching and asking for support for women and girls, we need to have that institutionalized on a county level. Given that this has been in existence for a little over a year, what are you learning? We're learning that. Uh, well, over a year, but in our run-up to the commission, we had also a Blue Ribbon Commission that examined and, and all the women's commissions and, and made a report to the board as to why a women's commission would be important and useful. And in that, we did a lot of deep listening. We we looked at answering that question of how are the women and girls, and we found that there wasn't much data to answer that question, so we began listening. And in listening to women, we learned a lot of things. We learned uh, a lot of what the needs are, and we also learned that the power of coming together and sharing and uplifting one another. And also, of course, during the COVID crisis, uh, we've learned a lot about how the inequalities prior to the crisis got exacerbated. What are the specific needs of women in our area, especially when you're touching upon that many of these issues were exposed in recent years because of the pandemic? 
Yeah, and you know, in many ways, women. Uh, there's been international studies, national studies about the disproportionate impact of of the crisis on women, and uh, particularly in women of color as well, and in and in uh, neighborhoods and areas where um, communities were already not doing well. But for women across the board and of all economic stature, we're seeing a, an incredible stress. We're seeing uh, issues from childcare to domestic violence. Uh, issues that that are new and weren't there before and, and are coming. And we're also uh, seeing this workforce issues. You know, many of the dominantly um, led by women work workers, those are under stress, whether it's from teachers to nurses to uh, caregivers. Uh, and we're, we're finding that before COVID, um, while 46% of um, women were holding jobs, over 54 to 55% of the job losses are, are from women. So disproportionate job losses as well. And also it goes, you know, we have a very robust women-owned businesses here in the Sacramento area. And uh, like all businesses, um, small businesses, they're under stress as well. Yeah, of course. And we've had those conversations, which are incredibly important at length here on Insight. When you're doing these listening sessions, you're learning about these really serious issues that need to be addressed in our community. Who do you take them to, to, to get some actionable change? Well, we're going to be taking them to the board of supervisors. And as you said, we're just new and we're, we've got a work plan that we're uh, building for our commission. And we invite uh, women in throughout the region to join us. Uh, we're going to take them to the board of supervisors, to the public, but also women to help women. I think that we have a great tradition here of volunteerism and, and support, community support. We have an extraordinary organizations supporting women and girls. And we've been working with the leaders of those organizations and who, by the way, are also under stress. The the, the organizations uh, are under stress from COVID. Uh, we're going to be working together um, to build those bridges of support. And this week, in about two days on Thursday, you're going to have an event. Who's invited and being honored? And, and what will people learn by attending? Yes, well, we're celebrating the newly elected women leaders in our region. And as you just had, uh, West Sacramento, uh, which is not in our county, but it's part of our region. And we're very proud that uh, women leaders are, are coming into into their own. And we have now, for the first time, uh, uh more women on the city council of Sacramento. Uh, and so we're going to be celebrating these women, uh, 14 newly elected women leaders uh, in the region, and the many women leaders um, serving in higher levels of leadership who've been reelected, our county board of supervisors, the Congress, the state Senate and assembly. You know, we have women mayors in four of our seven cities, and that doesn't count West Sac. So uh, we've got women's leadership, 23 city council members, leaders of school boards, and districts, and the president and vice president of SMUD. So all of them we're coming together with also organizations serving women and girls so that we can share information about the resources available, bring the women leaders together. And we really think that women leaders coming together across party lines, across the region, uh, and also all these organizations serving women and girls in different capacities, that we can really make a difference together. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. 
You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Erin Saberi is the chair of the Sacramento County Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. And we do have more information about the event on Thursday on our Insight page. And with that, that is it for Insight today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation, you can shoot us an email, insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobis and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minada. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones, and our engineer is Antonio Munez. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.